Last time on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, you'll notice this is the first time they've actually pulled the two-parter thing. Which actually worked out pretty well, because this was a very expensive two-parter to make. Lots of guest stars, and lots of special effects with regards to the wormhole, and the fleets, and the battle. Apparently the battle was one of the most complicated things they ever did. In fact, they split it amongst two separate digital uh, companies, Foundation, and I can't remember the other one. Just to help deal with it. They even uh, contacted Dan Curry and Bradley Thompson who are two people who work on the show, who both have an idea and understanding of military tactics in order to try and get an idea of said military tactics to help make it look like it was an actual military engagement. A lot of work went into this, and it kind of shows. This also pretty much served to lay the groundwork for the finale of Season 7. Not the special effects part, but the string continuity thing. I've referenced before that this is this was the first time, the very first time they did this. And they will attempt this again in Season 7, and then Season 3 and 4 of Enterprise, as well as Discovery. But I bring that up because it is the tremendous success of this six-parter, or technically seven-parter, that allowed them to say, yeah, no, this totally worked, let's do this again. And from what I understand, and this is from interviews with Ira Stephen Bear and Ronald Moore, uh, Ronald D. Moore, the, the throw-it-together nature of how they bungled their way through this six-parter is part of how they were able to then be more prepped for the finale. But we'll get there when we get there. <clears throat> so, of course, they decide to try and pull a Hannibal on on the Cardassians. And I wouldn't even make that connection, but I've actually seen that film, the one where Alexander Siddig plays Hannibal. It's, it's, it's just a nice touch. I just thought it was amusing. Uh, you know, those little coincidences in fiction. There's this nice bit where O'Brien says, you know, don't worry. Don't focus on those ships. Focus on your job and try not to think about it. I only point that up because I've actually heard real life you know, in my own family, uh, professionals, mostly in the medical side, but also in the military side, who have actually said the exact same advice, that that's how you deal with large-scale conflicts or a tremendous crisis or something like that. You, you just focus on what your job is and you black out everything else. <laughs> Humanity, am I right? Odd question. Why, uh, speaking of which, why is Cisco the opnav here? Like, why is he the fleet commander? You'd think an admiral like Ross would be the one in charge, but no, he's the one who actually gives commands to the entire fleet of about 600 ships, I might add. Well, I was actually thinking about this going through this, because it's always bothered me, but if you pay attention, he only gives orders to what is effectively maybe a few squadrons of ships. And a few squadrons do not equal to 600. So what I'd like to think is he's effectively functioning as a fleet captain here, or a commodore equivalent. In short, he's in charge of his, let's call it, line, and other people are in charge of the other lines, and we just don't see them. And that would make a degree of sense. It is interesting that Cisco seems to take point, though. I suppose he's got the command experience, the frontline experience, I should say, as well as the, you know, the defiant, but it is still interesting. Uh, there's... This bit where they op they say, okay, we're going to go ahead and we're going to open up the trap and let them come in. And they say, well, let's charge right in. I was actually thinking about that, tactically speaking, and it makes a degree of sense because what else are they going to do? Remember, they're on a deadline. The Dominion fleet will win if they just hold them here. So any engagement has to be on, on the Federation side because the Dominion has no reason to engage. So... Yeah, I can kind of see the logic of that, such as it is. Although if the Klingons hadn't shown up, that probably would have been the end of it. Oh, we finally get a number for how many ships are just squatting on the other side of the wormhole ready to go. 2,800. 
For a bit of perspective, the total number of ships involved in this engagement, in the big battle here, is roughly 1,800. Roughly. And 2,800 ships are ready to join the fray on the other side. Yeah, that, that would be game. As I've said many times, they don't need more than they have to win, and if they get that much more, that's it. At that point, it's all about occupation and administration. Which is funny, because that's the exact same thing Wayun brings up. Once again, we see the administrator in him. We're going to need a massive occupation army, lots of vigilance, and lots of ships. That's okay, we can build more. But we should eradicate the population of Earth first. I've actually already referenced this, but notice how I mentioned earlier, he once again just says this so casually. Uh, I don't know what the population of Earth is as of this point in Star Trek. In fact, I wasn't able to find any really good figures on it. Uh, but right now in real life, Earth has 7.53 billion people on it, roughly. Now, that is, of course, just a number. And we cannot, as human beings, properly cognate that. But I really want to stress the point that Wayun effortlessly and casually talks about eradicating roughly 7 billion people. Just like that. Just as if it was, yeah, okay, well, just kill all the people. Dukat is the one who says, you can't do that. Uh, why not? And Dukat struggles to come up with an answer for that. I have heard from some people, and I actually like this line of thinking, that Dukat brings a contention to that because to him the idea of wiping out 7 billion people is too much. It's basically over the line. And I know what you're thinking, but Dukat's horrible. Of course he is. But that's over the line. And that, thereby, becomes the point to once again differentiate the Cardassians and all their horribleness from the Dominion, who are even worse. This kind of is a, a recurring trend that's been happening for several episodes now, actually, to show that the Dominion really are that much worse than anything else we've seen. And I have to admit, I like that idea. Dukat, of course, then comes up with this story of, oh, you know, you have to, you have to force them, you have to make them acknowledge your greatness, for, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I have no doubt that he believes that to some extent or not, but I have to admit, I love the idea that Dukat has a line, that there is a point where even he will not cross. Just, food for thought. And I know what some of you are going to say. Let, let's save our discussion for Dukat last. I actually want to talk about him last. So forgive me for bringing it up. Let's move on to our next point. So, we have this horrible, dark, wonderful battle going on, and they've jammed the comms, and everyone's getting blasted, and ships are being destroyed left and right. Cut to Wayun and Dukat having drinks. It's a nice contrast. But, what I like also is that back on the ship, Cork is now alone. The only ally he has on the entire station is Zeal. They say history turns on little things. I just want everyone to really realize that, if not for the inferences of Quark and Zeal, there's a pretty good chance that they wouldn't have won the day here, that the station would be able to destroy DS9, or excuse me, Defiant, before it went into the wormhole. Think about that. So... <laughs> um, out of 600 ships, of course, only the Defiant gets through. I do admit Quark's plan is hilarious. They actually do have a souffle. And there's nothing wrong with it, but he keeps acting up like, Oh, God, there might be something wrong with it. There might be... No, no, there's there's definitely nothing in the souffle. What are you talking about? Because there isn't, of course. <laughs> that wasn't the plan. I do love how when Quark takes down the two Geminar shoulders, soldiers, he is in complete shock. Of course he is. He's a normal guy. As I've said many times... That's kind of the point of Quark, is that he's an everyman. He's, he's actually more of an everyman, as weird as this may sound, than O'Brien. 
when I say every man, to be clear, what I mean is he is someone who is more ground level in terms of perspective, who is not a great hero, who is not some legendary figure, who is not a skilled engineer or a, a amazing doctor or a genetically engineered person or a super advanced alien or anything like that. He's just some dude. And when some dude out of what is effectively sheer instinct, probably accidentally pulls the trigger on, you know, he just kind of jerks and kills the two Jim Hadar, of course it's going to put you in shock. I love that little touch. Nice touch. I also like how Kira seems to sympathize with him at least a little bit. Granted, she was a lot younger when she made her first kill, but, I mean, right? <laughs> Anywho, <clears throat> so... They make this last-ditch effort. We're going to do it. We're going to stop it. We defeated... No. Failure. I'll admit, when I was watching this for the first time, that caught me. Because that's not the normal Star Trek approach. The normal Star Trek approach is, okay, last did it. Okay, three seconds to spare. Okay, we made it. We made it. Whew. Okay, we turned off the weapons. And now the Defiant can, you know, stop the whatever. No. Wormhole is opened, mines are destroyed, 2,800 ships are coming through. Now, this is interesting. I've heard people debate over the years if Cisco went into the wormhole knowing the prophets would get involved, but upon rewatch, and I paid very close attention to his reactions when he's pulled in by the prophets, he's like, what? What, what are you doing? What do you want from me? Why are you pulling me here? <laughs> I don't think he went in for the prophets. I think he went in to die, just to put that as bluntly as I can to be a pebble that the Dominion fleet roll over. What else can you do in those circumstances? I know a lot of people point out that those pods were probably automated back in Best of Both Worlds Part 2, but if you'll imagine for a moment that they weren't, it's the same mentality. Well, this is an impossible circumstance and there's no point in resisting. And then you pick up your gun. But then the profits happen. But before we get to the profits, we're going to take a quick turn, because there's three things I want to discuss at the end of this episode. You know how the episode ends. First, I want to talk about the Founders. I mentioned this one. This is the last time I really plan to bring this up in any substantial amount. When the female changeling goes to Odo, she says, our battle with the Federation goes well. Now, that's an important note, because she says it so smoothly, and she's trying to once again emphasize that Odo is on her side. And she's trying to do that whole passive manipulation thing. She probably senses to some extent or another that she's lost him. And, you know, that's very valid because she totally has. But then she decides, okay, she'll go ahead and reveal her cards. After all, Kira's already been arrested, and soon she'll be gone, so there's no more need for you to stay away from us. And this, right here, is the founder mentality in a nutshell. This is the best way to exemplify how alien they really are to the rest of us. Because, to them... Having I, it, the very, it's, it, let me put this into simpler words. I want you to imagine for a moment that there's someone you care about, and then there's someone else who is family, and the someone else uh, wants you to you know, be with them. Okay, the someone else will say you're, the person you care about is Bobina, or Bob. I don't care about the gender, and the person wanting you to join them is Barbarella. Okay, we'll make them both female. Why not? Now Barbarella doesn't understand why you don't want to, to go with Barbarella. I mean, come on, why not? <laughs> They've got a nice house. They've got whatever it is you care about there. They'll allow you to pursue the career you want to. It's everything you've ever wanted. But 
for some reason you're, you're you're really attached to to Bob, the first one. Okay, no problem. Um, so what if Barbarella then offers to kill, to murder Bob in order to get you to come with? That'll get rid of the problem, right? Now you'll have no reason to stay, and you'll of course come with us, and you'll be in our paradise forever. If that doesn't sound as abominably wrong as it should, then I'm not doing my job right to make this clear. But from a founder perspective, it makes perfect sense. The only possible explanation for why Odo has not rejoined is Kira. I already mentioned that. So logically, simply removing the problem will remove the problem. There will be no more obstacles, and Odo will rejoin them with open arms. And that is how much the founders really do not understand the rest of us. Or Odo. And, of course, it's very logical. It's so logical, right? Of course this will get her him to rejoin us. Why wouldn't it? And this, by the way, is why all those months ago, during episodes uh, Heart of Stone, Season 3, Episode 14, I made a comment of why wouldn't the female changeling just kill Kira? Now, a lot of you left comments saying, well, she knew if she killed Kira, she'd lose Odo. To which I say, this episode. I don't buy that for a millisecond. She has absolutely no hesitation about killing Kira if she presumes it'll further her own ends. The ends in this case being getting Odo back. You can tell that she doesn't even cognate the fact that killing Kira will affect Odo in a negative manner. It, it, she th looks at it like uh, maybe, maybe like losing a toy. Like imagine you have a child and you say, well, I'm sorry, I have to take away... I've got the Void Yoshi here. I've got to take away your Void Yoshi. And so... That's that's like the, the level of what she's thinking of this. I have to take away this toy, I'm sorry. But once I do, everything will be better. And of course, the founders... Hmm, I've talked about their aspirations of godhood before, but it's relevant because the founders proclaim themselves god. Very guauld, I might add. Uh, and they, they, they build this mythos and they build this ineffable we are beyond, above and beyond you quality. But the problem is the founders are actually amazingly limited by the access of what they have. By contrast, the prophets come a little bit closer to being actual gods, which is, of course, the next thing I want to talk about. For those of you who weren't around when this episode came out, there was actually a bit of a ruckus, a bit of an uproar, such as it is, about people who are upset about the deus ex machina at the end of the episode, where the prophets, uh, wrong hand, get rid of the 2800. And that's kind of the end of that. That basically seals the deal. Because not only does that get rid of the one fleet, it ensures the Dominion can never use the wormhole with safety again. So the prophets are now forming the defense barrier that the mines used to. Now, this never bothered me for a millisecond. And the main reason why is because the prophets are exactly what the mines are not. The prophets are a well-established aspect of the series that have invested reasons to actually care about Bajor, as Sisko himself points out, and to have specific, thus because of such investment, specific reasons to get involved. They also form, shall we say, a more permanent barrier of the wormhole, enabling, enabling them to actually bottleneck it and actually maintain that barrier in a way that no one else had predicted before. This is one of the reasons why I pointed out everything I did in the last episode about, oh, we need to take DS9. Why? Because at the time, and in this episode, Cisco was not thinking of using the Prophets as the barrier. 
which is funny because he probably should have because he probably could. Oh yeah, quick interesting aside. According to the writers, the reason the prophets demand penance for the fact that they do this favor for Cisco is only because of the fact that, from a writer's perspective, they wanted there to be some cost to the heroes. So that's the real reason for that. But I like to think that there's a little bit of a Ferengi reason for that. I like to think that they were introduced to the concept of a trade by their interactions with both Zek and Quark. And thus they decide, okay, we will make an exchange. We do this, you do that. And of course I would be remiss if I did not point out the excellent episode, the 2800, over in Star Trek Online, which kind of concludes the story arc. Just wanted to point that out really quick, because it was one of the first times STO really caught my attention. I was like, oh, that's awesome. Anyways, <clears throat> they mention... <laughs> they mentioned this is a corporeal matter. Yeah, bullcrap. The prophets have shown themselves to care substantially about corporeal matters and about Bajoran specific many times. No why has ever been given to my knowledge or understanding. I could be wrong about that, of course. Uh, but it's interesting to think about because they do obviously care about Bajor and what happens to Bajor and really nothing else. It's almost like they've deliberately limited themselves despite being non-temporally limited creatures. It's, it's very unusual to think about. I've heard a lot of fan theories about this, that they literally are the Bajorans in... that the Bajorans basically eventually become the prophets who, by virtue of being across time, then always were, if you follow me. But uh, I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. It's just It's just interesting to think about. So I've talked about, uh, sorry, I've talked about the founders, I've talked about the Deus Ex Machina. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts about both. <sighs> Let's talk about Dukat. Dukat is very pleased with himself for the early part of this episode. You can tell all oh, that stress is drained away and it's just, oh, finally, we're going to have victory. And we're going to start moving forward with our plans. We're going to start devising ourselves from the Dominion. It's going to be wonderful. <sighs> But there's just, there's just one little problem. His daughter isn't with him for some reason, and, and he really need that to be with him. She is my daughter. That may mean nothing to you, but it means everything to me. So, he also, something I've, I wanted to point out, I hope at least some of you are watching these episodes alongside me, because in the past several episodes, almost every shot with Ducat in the... Uh, the captain's office, has the baseball on screen. They make a point of ensuring that the camera is facing away so you can see the baseball. And it's been there consistently, basically since the baseball was introduced at the end of Season 5. And when I say introduced, I mean when Ducat picked it up. It's like, oh, it's a mess with that thing, right? So the baseball has been a consistent visual element. In this episode, he finally picks the damn thing up. He starts playing with it. And... As he's doing so, he gets more and more violent with it as he's just... Because at this point, it's very clear Ducat is using the baseball as a literal, physical uh, allegory for not only Cisco but the resistance against him and his empire and the Dominion in general. And it's, it's great little symbolism. Very obvious, but very effective as well. And then everything goes to hell. He spirals out of control mentally fast. Just completely starts losing it in the space of seconds. But first thing he thinks of is Zial. Now that's interesting in its own right. 
And then they show several shots, not really from his perspective, but a camera that's following him. And it's a person actually physically holding the camera, which is significant, because it means the shot is shaky. It, it kind of shows his, his, oh God, it's, it's a very common tactic to show that someone is mentally uh, damaged at the time. But he finally sees her, and notice his joy when he finally sees the all. Thank God I found you. You're all I have, all I care about. I couldn't live with myself if you hated me. I've said before that there's a lot of different interpretations that I've heard over the years about Ducat's feelings about and towards Zial. I also know what the writer's intent is, which I'll talk about in a moment. But before I say any of that, as ever, I offer the opportunity once again to share your thoughts about Ducat in general and his specific feelings with Zial in specific, because... <laughs> for reasons I'll discuss in just a moment, this is basically the last time I'm going to talk about Dukat. Some of you already understand what I mean by that, and I'll go over it in a minute. <clears throat> You're all I have left, all I care about. Now, his obvious joy at seeing her is relevant, but it is also possible that he only cares because she's all he has left. As I've already elucidated, he cares a great deal about anything in his sphere of influence, no matter how large or small it is. And I couldn't live with myself if you hated me. One of the consistent points about Ducat is his self-delusion. I think this is something that all of us tend to agree with to some extent or another. That he feels that he, if only the Bajorans, he even says in this episode, if only the Bajorans had seen me the way I really was. If only Sisko could acknowledge the, how much I was his equal. But he couldn't do it. It's so weird that these people don't understand how great of a guy I really am. Now that makes him kind of scum, and that's absolutely true. But the point is, it's possible that he is completely self-deluded. That, in other words, he could not withstand the real thought of someone hating him being his daughter, the one person he considers closest to him. Or it's entirely possible that he really does legitimately care about her. And thus, for the reason most people would say it, they couldn't stand the thought of being hated by them. It's also probably worth noting these are not necessarily mutually exclusive ideas. I was paying very close attention. Now, I've mentioned before how Ducat has developed as a character in part thanks to writers, directors, and Margolemo himself, and how they don't do things necessarily the way that the showrunner intended. This is one of the reasons Ducat got fleshed out so much, and then they had to pull the reins back on that by saying, oh, he's the bad guy. But And yes, I say that dismissively because I think that was a mistake. But the relevant point here is that as I pay attention to the nuances of performance, I have to note, Alemo portrays Ducat as if he is overjoyed to see his daughter. And when his daughter stops and says, you know, I love you, Ducat goes after her. Now, the implication I get from that, and this is very relevant to me in you know, d determining the specifics, is he was going to stay with her. That he was going to, again, by the way, choose her over his career. Not the first time he's made that choice. I think he was going to go for that. I think she was more important to him than the power or the Cardassian Union or any of the rest of that. And I think that because I tend to believe in the concept of what I call cores. It's hard to explain in, in, in simplicity. So all I'm going to say is we all have things that we care about basically above and beyond everything else. That if it really came down to it, if you had to lose your leg or your job or your car, some massive significant thing, it's okay as long as you keep your core. 
it is my opinion that Zial, his daughter, really was Dukat's core. The only core he had. Because some people have multiple, obviously. And that he was willing to do a great deal to keep her on his side, to be with her. And again, when the chips are down, when he is given a choice to go with the rest of the Dominion and continue to be the ruler of all of Cardassia, or be with his daughter, he chose to be with his daughter. Now, that is just my opinion. It's worth noting now that I've said my opinion, and of course you guys have had a chance to either pause the video or do whatever you do to put in the comments. I'm really looking forward to the comments this year, or this week, excuse me. But um, it's worth noting we do know exactly what the writers intended. Um, it's something I've talked about many times. I need to come up with a lorium for this someday because it just keeps coming up. The idea is a character goes through hell. Horrible, horrible, terrible, traumatic experience. Some people come out of it with the best of themselves, and some people come out of it with the worst of themselves. Now, the idea here is to use Cisco and Ducat as parallels to each other, because for some reason there's supposed to be some big dichotomy between the two, which personally I don't see, but that was the intent of the writers and the showrunner. Iris Stephen Bear has commented on this several times. The idea being that Cisco goes through hell and comes out of it with the best of himself, but Ducat goes through hell and comes out of it with the worst of himself. He is also specifically called out to be a sociopath who, do, who actually cares about Zial, but is not above using her and manipulating her. This is from the showrunner, uh, more or less a direct quote. I should have written it down. So we know the intent, we know what we see on screen, and we know what we interpret. It's interesting to see these comparisons with each other. But I did say I have a couple more things to say. And the first is that when Zial is shot, he's gone. Ducat is just, <laughs> that's the end. He completely snaps. In fact, he snarls at Damar. So, if you pay attention to Damar, Casey Biggs, he just like like he's in shock at how how gone D Ducat looks in that moment. So Damar just bails. <laughs> oh yeah, that reminds me. Another thing the showrunner said is that Ducat was always mad because of the reasons I just mentioned. So the episode ends with what is effectively the death of Ducat. He's completely mentally lost. He's lost his only core, as I would say it. Or he lost the last thing that was his. Or he lost someone he cared about. Or it was the final straw. Or he was always mad. Or however you want to interpret this. One way or another, he's gone. And he gives the baseball back, symbolism, to Cisco. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is why I say this is the end of Ducat. Normally, I like to do the the kind of facetious thing, right? Or, or you know, the the, the pseudo sardonic thing, where it's like I'm going to state an opinion as absolute fact because it's true, damn it, you know. But I I, I do that jokingly, and I don't want to on this and what is effectively an official document that's supposed to you know, hopefully going to be on the internet for the next bajillion years. I don't want to state something like that jokingly. So let me make this very clear. It is my opinion that this is the end of Gull Dukat right here. That we never see him again. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Lord, Waltz. That's not even that far from now. It's like ten episodes from now. I know. Now, I have actually talked to several Star Trek fans over the years. Would you believe I have never talked to one that disagreed with me on this? Now, I know. By mere virtue of saying that, I am guaranteeing that there are people on there who are going to disagree with me. And that's fine. In fact, I'm actually very curious how many of you do legitimately disagree with me on this. In case I'm not making my point clear... 
I have always mentally distinguished the waltz and onward Ducat, what I usually refer to as the Paw Wraith Ducat, from Gold Ducat, the one we got from season one to season six. Completely different characters in my mind. Now, on the one hand, that's actually absolutely true. He does literally become possessed by a Paw Wraith and finds his new faith and tries to destroy the Alpha Quadrant. So you could argue that he is different. The problem is at the beginning of Waltz, they start to showcase that he, this, that's before he interacts with the Paw Wraith. So he's not actually, you know, Paw Wraith Ducat yet. But what he is, is completely deranged, sociopathically, horrifically, nightmarishly evil because the showrunners wanted it that way. This is my problem with this, and this is why I have no problem headcanoning this. Because the problem is, as I've said before, the creators and producers of this show wanted Ducat to be the devil. They wanted him to be the ultimate evil of the show. And anyone who's watched season one through five and a half, or I guess season one through six and a half, excuse me, of the show has had different opinions on that. And I know that because we've been discussing Ducat for years. He's actually one of the most discussed characters in Star Trek. Seriously, at least in my experience. And yet, for some reason, they were like, no, he's got to be the bad guy. And so what happens is basically a retcon. Now, retcons can be good or bad. It depends on the quality. But in this case, I would say this retcon is bad. I would say this isn't a retcon that just tries to basically say, no, he's just a horribly disgusting evil person. There's no layers there. There's no dimension. There's no depth. There's no character. He's a cartoonish bad guy. Accept it. Because that is what Ducat will be from Waltz onwards. A cartoonishly evil, psychopathic, sociopathic, yes, both, nightmarish person. Nothing else. And that, well, to be pl to be as blunt as I can, I find that to be cheap. I don't care for that at all. So I reject it, because I don't have to accept canon. It is canon, and I'm, it's my job to, to comment on canon and to share canon, but it doesn't mean I have to accept it personally. Which again brings me back to my point, this being the end of Ducat. Ignoring the fact that from now on we're not getting what I consider to be Ducat, if I might be so bold, this is also a fitting ending for Ducat that the deposed tyrant and the great military leader and the one true Cardassian and the father figure and the man totally going to get with Kira ends up losing everything and just descends into whimpering childish madness. That, to me, feels like a fitting end for the character, really. We could probably still do stories after this, but they don't need to be done at this point. <sighs> I think that's actually it. Going forward, we have a few other things to talk about. Um, next episode is, of course, the wedding. I, I have a few other things to talk about once we get past the wedding, so I'm going to save that for when we get there. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. Despite my comments on the whole Gold Ducat thing, I just want to make it clear, I love this episode. This is actually one of my favorite episodes in the whole uh, show. <laughs> this is easily in, in the VHS category. In fact, I used to rewatch this episode all the time just because I loved it that much. So I hope you've enjoyed me gushing about it, discussing it. I'm very much looking forward to seeing your comments, guys. I'll see you next time.